Well, good morning, church. Uh, for those of you who haven't met me, my name is Clement. I am one of the ministry apprentices here. Uh, please join me in prayer as we come before the Lord today. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the wonderful privilege to come before you, to hear your word being preached and declared to our hearts. And so, Lord, open up our hearts today. Um, This passage that we come to is a sensitive one, but one that we so desperately need to hear. And so pray, Father, that you may remove any barriers within our hearts and allow us to come before you humble and eager to receive your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ages ago, my friend and I, we took their puppy out for a walk. And the puppy being a puppy, it was eating something that it wasn't supposed to eat. And so my friend, uh, in order to tell it off, it smacked it on the bum. And out of the blue, this lady came up to us and started yelling at us and telling us off. Hey, that's not okay for you to hit that puppy, man. Like, How can you be so cruel? And in other words, for her, punishing the dog was wrong. It was harmful. It's a negative thing to do. And you know, back then I was thinking to myself, oh, Hank, why are you yelling at me? Like, I don't even like dogs. I'm a cat person. Why you, I've got nothing to do with this. But on reflecting on that incident, it actually shows that punishment and judgment has a negative connotation. It has a negative connotation because we immediately associate it with something harmful. Now, There are positive cases or positive uses of punishment. So we think of the criminal justice system, for example. Yet the topic makes us uncomfortable. Uh, For one, none of us like to be on the receiving end of judgment. For another, we see it as the opposite of love. We see it as the opposite of what it means to be compassionate and understanding. And that makes us really reluctant to either punish or to judge others. As a former teacher, I've, I've spoken to parents who they are quite hesitant to discipline their kids. And the reason why they're hesitant is because they're afraid of being labeled as a bad parent. And in churches, you know, we, we get excited when we talk about God's love and compassion and we love teaching about God's grace. But when it comes to God's judgment, we avoid it like the plague. We avoid it like the plague because we want to avoid being labeled as intolerant, judgmental, or divisive. But friends, as we come to Hosea chapter 5, there there is no escaping it. Because at the heart of the passage is judgment. God's judgment. God's punishment on a people who have turned away from Him. And it seems harsh and brutal. But I don't want us to skim through this because... God's judgment or God's punishment, it's, it is actually a critical part of our growth as Christians. And so the outline is in your bulletins, and we will see that judgment is important for three reasons. Right? You ready? It's in your bulletins. One, it reveals our denial. It reveals our denial. Two, it removes our crutches. It removes our crutches. And three, it restores our repentance. It restores our repentance. And so the book of Hosea will show us that there is grace even within God's judgment. There is grace even within God's judgment. And so come with me to point one. 
You know, last week, Pastor Elliot led us through Hosea 4, and we saw that God was targeting the religious leaders for their failure, their failure to teach the people of God to be faithful to Him. And as we come to the start of chapter 5, we see that the scope has widened. Not only the religious leaders, but now the, the people, the royal rulers, the um, rulers of the land, they were all now under fire as well. And we were given a brief description or a snapshot as to what these charges against them were. Like the religious leaders, um, the priests were accused of leading the people astray. Now we see that in verses 1 to 2. And you notice that there were like a few places listed there, right? There's Mizpah and Tabor. And it means nothing to us like in this present time. But to the people of God, these places are associated with justice, with righteousness, and with military conquests. It was associated as a place where their leaders, the judges, ruled with righteousness and saved them from their enemies. You know, kind of like when we think of Singapore, we associate it with a place of beauty, culture, and luxury. But now, at this point in time, now it has turned to a place that traps, that seduces people to worship a foreign god, the Baals. It was now seen as a place where people were led to become unfaithful to God. And next we see charges against the people. At this time, the people were still, you know, doing their religious practices. They were offering sacrifices. They were celebrating religious festivals as commanded. But unfortunately, it was all just a cover for their unfaithfulness. They were torn between two lovers. They were torn between their love for God and their love for the bowels. And if you look at your Bibles and look at verse 7... Notice what it says. They were giving birth to illegitimate children. In other words, even their children were following in their footsteps. They were also led astray and they became unfaithful to God. And this made them illegitimate offsprings in God's eyes. And if that's not bad enough, we have the charges against the rulers. You know, like a a bit of historical background, uh, God's people, they used to be united under one king. But if you read through 1 Kings, you will notice that at the very end, there were a series of conflicts that led the kingdom to split in two. You got the northern kingdom of Israel, and in your Bibles, it's interchangeable with the word Ephraim. And then you got the southern kingdom of Judah. The kingdom is split apart. And notice what the rulers were doing, right? Like, come with me to verse 10. In verse 10, it says, Judah's leaders are like those who move boundary stones. What God is trying to say is that the kingdom was in conflict even amongst themselves. They were meant to be one people. They were meant to be united in their worship. They were meant to be just one whole people celebrating, loving each other and loving God. But no. They were like children fighting over a sandpit. They keep trying to take territory away from one another. They try to push their boundaries further into other people's territory. And so we can see that it threatens the unity of the people. It undermines their witness to the nations. And it clearly displeases God. Now the charges here are quite serious. 
But this was not the only reason why God judged them. The reason why God judged them, because they were blind and in denial of their sin. They were blind and in denial of their sin. And church, I want us to pay close attention because as the people of God, we too can be in in denial in the following ways. We can be in denial by underestimating our desires. Look at verse 4 with me. Verse 4 reads, Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. The spirit of prostitution is in their hearts. They do not acknowledge the Lord. You know, to the Israelites' credit, we don't want to be too harsh. Like To their credit, they are making some effort. You know, they are trying to come back to him. At least that's what the passage is telling us, right? Maybe they're starting to read their Bibles again. Uh, Maybe they are praying more. Or maybe they were attending church more regularly now as well. And these are good things. Yet they could not return to God because they were trapped in their unfaithfulness. They were still trapped by their own desires for the bowels. And we've got to ask ourselves, right? Because we as modern audiences don't get it. What is so attractive about the bowels? What is so attractive about them? What is so appealing about them? One Bible commentator noted that the reason why the bowels were so attractive, so appealing to the Israelites, is because the worshippers, they tie their religious practices closely with sex. And this tie is seen in the way that as they worship, part of their worship is to visit temple prostitutes during that time. And so you can see, uh, you know, appealing to people's desires for intimacy and pleasure with the promise of prosperity if you do the deed. No wonder this cult has such a pull on people. Their affections for God was weak and their affections for these false idols were greater. Instead of acknowledging God, the source of all good things, the source of all pleasure, the source of all peace and goodness and prosperity, they seek all these things in other sources. And we get it, don't we? You know, we may assume that we are free from the sexual practices of our worship, and we are free. We don't do all that. That's pagan nonsense. But you know, our culture's obsession with sex and sexuality shows us that it still has a massive stranglehold on us. You know, we see it through movies, ads, online dating websites like Ashley Madison, pornography. Sex is blasted at us in all directions, and they promise to satisfy our cravings. And you know, we're not dumb. We're not stupid. We know that they are harmful. We know they overpromise. But like a moth drawn to a flame, we just can't resist the promises that they offer, the pleasure and the intimacy we crave. And church, you and I know that it doesn't just have to be sex. Whether it is money, career, our relationships, we can harm ourselves by finding ultimate satisfaction, ultimate security, ultimate significance in these things. And, you know, we may think that we can change our behavior just like that. But the Bible shows us that we often underestimate our desires. And not only do we underestimate our desires, 
but we overestimate our sincerity. Come with me to verse 6. Verse 6, it reads, People were going with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord. And at this point, you might be thinking, oh, hang on, that looks pretty promising, right? People were going to the temple, they were offering sacrifices. It shows that they are sorry, right? Great, finally they're getting their act together. But notice God's response in verse 6. It says, They will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. God was clearly not happy about their sacrifices. Why? Because they were insincere. They say the right things, they use the right expressions, penal substitutionary atonement. They go through all the proper procedures and checkpoints. Yet notice what they never did. They never fully admitted their unfaithfulness. They never came before God and admitted honestly how they have grieved Him. And so their confession of sin, it was half-hearted at best, or it was absent at worst. And you know, none of us, none of us in this room, like insincere apologies. Like imagine if someone you love, someone you treasure, someone you love so much was being unfaithful to you with another person. And instead of admitting that they are wrong, they buy you a gift to cover the issue. And even when you try to bring it up, they say, drop it. I've already bought you this gift. Or imagine, perhaps, that they promise to be faithful to you, they uh, promise to be committed to you, only for the very next day to fall into the hands of another lover. It is a te- it's terrible, right? That's the insincere apology. It's so terrible, and we hate to be on the receiving end of it. Your friends, this is exactly how God feels. When we, His people, come on a Sunday, we sing praises to Him, we pray the prayer of confession, we busy ourselves with ministry and chatting with our friends, all as a way to cover ourselves, all as a way to avoid admitting that we have wronged him. Friends, perhaps we are starting to see how God is angered and grieved by this. We underestimate our desires and we overestimate our sincerity. You know, out of insecurity, out of fear of losing the things we value, we are in denial in terms of how terrible our condition is. And so like the Israelites, God has to reveal our denial through his judgment. Moving on to point two, we see the effects of God's punishment. Firstly, it can weaken. Look at verse 12 of me. It says, I am like a moth to Ephraim, like a rot to the people of Judah. So just as a moth will slowly chew through clothes or rot that slowly breaks down a tree from the inside, God will cause his people to slowly weaken and waste away. You know, with him at that center, with him as the center of their affections, they stand firm. They stand solid. They stand united. Without him, they descend into chaos. They slowly experience the breakdown of their society. And so instead of being united, they become divided, demoralized, and friends. 
You and I know that when a group of people is divided, when they're demoralized, when they are lost, it makes them easy prey. It makes them vulnerable as prey. And secondly, God's judgment can destroy. Look at verse 14 with me. It says, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. And here's the thing. Not only will his unfaithful people be weakened, but they will also experience God's anger. As part of his judgment, the whole nation will be torn apart and destroyed. And historically, this was precisely what happened. The Assyrian Empire came and conquered Israel and the north, and it left Judah in the south weakened and vulnerable. And thirdly, and this is one of the crucial bits as well, God's judgment can also remove. God's intent through his judgment is to remove the crutches that his people were dependent upon. Look at verse 13. Uh, Verse 13, it reads, Ephraim and Judah saw their sickness and their sores. So we we can see that God's people here, they recognized that they were weak. They recognized that they were in desperate need. They were vulnerable. And perhaps at this point, you will think, come on, come to your senses, right? Like you, you, you need help. Go back to God. Go back to the one who gave you all these good things. Go back to the one who loves you, who cherishes you. But no, notice how they respond in verse 13. Instead of turning back to God, they turn to a foreign nation for help. They turn to Assyria. They turn to another nation as a crutch and as a cure. You know, and that's what's going through their heads. They think, oh, if we go to Assyria, this strong empire, if we make a strong political tie, if we make strong alliances with them, we will be safe. We'll be fine. But as you know, your history, it was doomed to fail drastically. And friends, we can see that even though God's people were experiencing spiritual cancer, instead of turning to the great surgeon, they turned to Panadol. And that will prove their downfall. Church, we too share in this tendency. You know, we tend to avoid facing the consequences of our sin at all costs. Instead of slowing down, instead of reflecting, instead of questioning ourselves, we flee to our crutches. We flee to the comfort of our relationships. We can flee to the busyness of our jobs and ministry. We can flee to the distraction of our hobbies. Anything for support, anything for relief, anything for comfort immediately. And I want to make it clear, it's not necessarily wrong per se to go to our friends, to go to work, to go to our hobbies. It's not wrong per se. But when we flee to our crutches, it actually reveals this. That we are less concerned about being convicted and more concerned about our comfort. Let me say that again. That we are less concerned about being convicted and more concerned about our comfort. We are more concerned about the hurt that we feel as opposed to the hurt and harm we've caused. And it actually shows that we value ourselves more than we value God. 
don't you realize that God has every right to abandon us and leave us as we are? And at this point, friends, it, it feels bleak. I can feel it in the room. It feels bleak. It really feels like God is completely done with his people, that his judgment is a sign that is over with us. Yet, friends, even as we look at chapter 5, we see that at the very end, there is a glimmer of hope. There is light in the distance. We see the light in verse 15. And if you have a pen, please highlight that in your Bibles. It says, Then I will return to my lair until they have borne their guilt and seek my face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. Friends, church, in other words, judgment is a sign that God is not done with his people. This verse actually shows us that God's judgment wasn't done purely to condemn, but to correct. It was, to, it was done to reveal their denial of their sin. It was done to remove their dependence on crutches so as to make them finally realize that nothing else apart from God can save them. And this is good news. Now, how, how do we know this? Because if you were with us from the very start, you will know that this was all happening at the backdrop within the greater story of Hosea. The story about a God who does what it takes to win back his unfaithful spouse. No, sure, he may tell her off. Sure, he may present the charges against her. Sure, he may make her face the consequences of her choices, but never to fully destroy her. And God so loved his bride that he had his own son, our Lord Jesus Christ, pay the price for her unfaithfulness at the cross. Friends, the cross is multidimensional. The cross shows us that God is angered at our unfaithfulness. Yet by Jesus' death in our place, it actually also shows God's love and grace. It shows a God who is calling his bride to return. So that for those who trust in him, God's punishment may be painful and it hurts. But because of Jesus, God's judgment does not aim to condemn, but to correct. It does not aim to be punitive, but to purify us. It does not aim to ruin, but to return us to him. And so friends, if you are currently feeling the weight of God's judgment, this is wonderful news. That there is grace even within judgment. Come with me to our final point. And before we move on, church, I want to make a few things clear. This does not mean that every time you suffer, God is punishing you. And it also does not mean that every time you sin, God will instantly punish you. But perhaps through God's word, through brothers and sisters that care about you or leaders within the church, you are confronted by a specific sin in your life. You're forced to endure the consequences. The process is painful. You feel condemned and hopeless. And in order to avoid dealing with it altogether, you consider leaving the church altogether. Friends, it may happen to any of us. But when it does, if it does, sorry, let me encourage us to respond in the following ways. 
Firstly, remember God's grace. Remember God's grace. Judgment is not a sign that God hates you. It's not a sign that God hates you, but it is a sign that He loves you. Because here's the thing. We often pit grace and judgment against each other, right? You know, we assume that the most unloving thing to do is to call someone out, to rebuke or to challenge someone. And to be loving and gracious means, you know, we, we need to avoid judging people. Uh, we need to just, just stay silent and let things slide. That's unloving. Yet the book of Hosea makes it clear that this is not true. In God's eyes, grace and judgment are not mutually exclusive. God's judgment, His punishment, His discipline, friends, that is actually a precious form of His grace. It is a precious form of His grace since He cares about us. You know, a a husband who loves his wife, he will not let her continue to hurt herself. Or a, a father or a parent who loves his child, they will correct them in their mistakes. And they will teach them to learn to live rightly. That's what a loving husband or wife or a parent would do. How much more so our God? Yes, it will be painful. Yes, you may have to endure the consequences, but don't mistake it for hate. You know, God could have just abandoned you. He could have just left you as you are, as you wallowed in your own filth, heading towards the path of destruction. Yet out of His love, in judgment, He warns you. You know, through the brothers uh, brothers and sisters who bring your sin to light, He may be correcting you. He may be shaking you awake as you drift half awake through a dark road so that you may come to your senses and return to Him. And so church, firstly, remember His grace. And secondly, re-examine our hearts. Instead of being reactive, you know, like take some time to slow down and process. You know, sometimes our repentances can be a bit of a knee-jerk reaction. You know, when someone points out your sin, you quickly apologize, you quickly pray the prayer of confession, you commit to changing, and bing, bam, boom, move on. But here's the thing, when we rush our responses, we can risk falling into two categories. We may risk, firstly, over-repenting. Now, here's what I mean when I say over-repenting. You know when someone has wronged you and they offer an apology without knowing what they're apologizing for? You know, it may be a sign that someone hasn't fully owned the weight of what they've done. They may over-repent without sufficiently reflecting on themselves in understanding what they've done. And so we can over-repent on the one hand, but on the other, we can also under-repent. You know, instead of taking responsibility, instead of owning our part in this, we may say, hey, uh, you know, I I might be wrong, but that's not really my fault per se. So friends, rushing may produce shallowness as opposed to genuine repentance. And so instead of being quick to respond, uh, we can slow down and ask ourselves the following two questions. And you'll see that in your outlines as well. The first question, am I willing to acknowledge that this action, emotion, belief, or way of life is sinful? 
Or do I find myself justifying, covering, and blame-shifting? For example, uh, you may find yourself worth in your career. And so when confronted, you justify the long hours you spend in the office while neglecting your relationship with God and your family. Or you may be really concerned about your own reputation and how people perceive you. And so whenever you do something wrong and you're confronted, you're quick to minimize, you deflect, and you shift focus on other people. Hey, why, why are you confronting me like you think I'm bad? You should see what these other guys are doing. And so, are you willing to acknowledge your actions or do you find yourself justifying, covering, or blame-shifting? And the second question is this. When confronted, am I upset about how my sin offends and grieves the God I love? Or am I more upset that I got caught? For example, when you slander and you say something damaging and false about another person, are you sad that you've displeased your Heavenly Father? Or are you more mad when someone confronts you about it? Or when you have hurt your brother and sister by your actions, do you genuinely acknowledge the harm you've caused before God? Or are you more irritated that they are treating you differently? And take some time to reflect and answer these questions. You know, um, ask someone to come alongside you as you reflect to help you process. Be patient and dig deep. And this is really crucial in order to make sure our repentance is not shallow. And church, when we see someone under God's judgment or discipline, our default posture should not be to sit in judgment of them. Nor should our posture be one where we police the church in order to catch people in sin, like, ah, gotcha, pagan. No, it shouldn't be like that. <laughs> when it comes to correction in the life of our congregation, church discipline is actually a gift and not a hammer. For ministry leaders and elders, we have to use that gift carefully through lots of prayer, through wisdom. But as a church, as a family of brothers and sisters, may I encourage us, our posture to be one of love, even as we encourage them to take repentance seriously. And lastly, after we've remembered God's grace, after we re-examine our hearts, return to His arms. Many of us are in this room today, and perhaps you're someone who is far away from God. Maybe you're someone who has left the church and has only started coming back recently. You know, you're, you're, you're genuinely sorry for your sin, and you're grieved by the hurt and harm you have caused. But maybe a part of you is still scared that God's judgment is a sign that He's rejected you. If that is you, I want to reassure you that you're not alone. But I want to give you a greater assurance. God is not done with you. God is not done with you. The Bible promises that if you trust in Jesus, God's judgment is not a mark of condemnation out of hate, but a mark of correction of love. There is grace even within God's judgment. And so whoever you may be, wherever you might be right now, 
May we all return to our God once again. Church, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we... It's kind of weird saying it out loud, but we thank you, Lord, for your judgment. We thank you, Lord, for your punishment. We thank you, Lord, for your discipline. It's painful, Lord, when we go through it. It's hard. We, in every fiber of our being, we are tempted to flee. But Lord, as we step back, as we look, we realize that your judgment is not a mark of condemnation, but it's a mark of your love. It's a mark of correction. It's a mark that continually calls us back to return to you. And so Lord, Father, we pray that we may see your discipline as a gift. A gift that shows your love as a father who disciplines that child, as a husband who is calling their wife to return. And so, Lord, wherever we may be at this point, we pray that as someone who may be receiving discipline at this moment, we pray, Lord, that we may humbly receive it as a mark of grace. For those who are called to love and correct May we not wield discipline as a hammer, but as a gift to call people to return, to repent, and to love them just as they are. And so, Father, we pray, Lord, that you may seal these truths into our hearts, encourage us where we may be, challenge us where we are at, rebuke us if necessary, but, Lord, bring us back to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.